Preston in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon to you all. Happy Monday and welcome to another week of Cresta in the Afternoon. As Al mentioned uh, the other day, he and many of the Ave Maria radio hosts are away this week hosting our Good News Marriage Cruise. And so we have a variety of things that we'll be doing over the next week on Cresta in the Afternoon, including some uh, great guest hosts. Today, though, we are looking back at some other conversations that Al has had. As you may know, uh, Saturday the 27th was International Holocaust Remembrance Day, and we'll be spending a lot of today's program talking about different aspects of the Holocaust. Uh, starting off with a commentary from Al, Where Was God in Auschwitz? And this is something that he recorded a few years after returning from Auschwitz himself. Al visited Auschwitz uh, six or seven years ago now, I want to say. And I've also been there myself. And when you're there, it is really easy just to think, how could something like this ever happen? Just the incredible sense of evil that you feel when you're in a place like that. And so Al answers that question of how could something like this ever happen? And where there are people who did discover God in Auschwitz, and he'll uh, talk about that as well. And then later in this hour, we look at the White Rose resistance to the Nazis. Uh, of course, much has been written and studied about the Holocaust. Like other atrocities, we tend to focus on the crimes and the villains rather than the victims and the heroes of the story. Well, during the Nazi regime, citizens all over Europe worked to dismantle the party. And today we look at the story of the German White Rose resistance and the life of Sophie Scholl. Paul Shrimpton will be joining us. He is the author of Conscience Before Conformity, Hans and Sophie Scholl and the White Rose Resistance in Nazi Germany, teaches at Magdalen College School in Oxford, England, and is a specialist in the history of education. And you can follow his other books as well, A Catholic Eaton and The Making of Men, The Idea and Reality of Newman's University. In the next hour, we will continue for a little bit our discussion of the Holocaust, looking at the story of Dachau's priest barracks. This is a story many people probably haven't heard. The most famous priest to be killed by the Nazis is, of course, probably St. Maximilian Kolbe, but there are many others as well. We'll get those stories with Father Joseph Fessio. And then finally, Cynthia Skudovato joins us, discussing her story of how a child led her from liberal feminism to life. All of that's coming up over the next two hours after this news break with Dan McGraw. Thank you, Bryant, and good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Monday, January 29th. It's the Feast of St. Gildas the Wise. And today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avemaria.edu. The Islamic State has claimed responsibility for the deadly attack on a Catholic church in Istanbul during Sunday Mass that left one man dead. Two suspects were arrested following raids on 30 locations across Istanbul. The attack took place at 11.40 a.m. local time as Mass was being offered in the church. Video footage of the attack obtained by EWTN News showed two masked assailants dressed in black following a man with white hair into the church and shooting him in the back of the head as parishioners hid under the pews. Oklahoma Senator James Lankford says he believes the border bill will pass. 
Speaking on CBS's Face the Nation, the Republican lawmakers said a number of senators are making judgments based on internet rumors and other misinformation. Langford downplayed any influence of former President Trump, who has called the bill a catastrophe waiting to happen, even though none of the text of the bill has been released. Two protesters in Paris are in hot water after splashing soup on the Mona Lisa. A French journalist says the incident happened Sunday at the Louvre Museum, where the 500-year-old painting by Leonardo da Vinci hangs behind bulletproof glass. Reporters say the environmental protesters were demanding healthy and sustainable food. And income tax season has arrived. You can start filing your 2023 federal income tax return on Monday. The IRS says that they are ready to make tax filing as smooth and easy as possible. From the Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Dan McGraw. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. It was a little over a year, about a year and a half ago that a number of you joined Steve Ray uh, and myself in a pilgrimage to Poland where we traveled to sites associated with Saints Maximilian Kolbe, John Paul II, Faustina, and Blessed uh, Jerzy Papiuszko. We also visited Auschwitz-Birkenau, the most famous of the Nazi death camps. January 27th is uh, recognized as uh, Holocaust Memorial Day. It was on January 30th of 1933 that Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany. And uh, it gives us a time to remember what is widely regarded, maybe universally regarded, as the most horrific act of inhumanity uh, towards one's fellow man in, in the entire 20th century. And... You could look at the history of modern theology, for instance, and it's in some reads of modern theology, it's theology after Auschwitz. It changes. Uh, so this introduces, of course, the, the pro- what we commonly call the problem of evil, but it's not a mere philosophical problem, and that's what you see at Auschwitz. It's a deeply personal problem. Um, while at Auschwitz, uh, I came across a detailed study of Rudolf Hess, who was the longest-running commandant, Nazi commandant of Auschwitz. And the study was done by a Catholic priest, and the title of it is, And Your Conscience Never Haunted You? Uh, It's a look at how this Catholic, Rudolf Hess, raised Catholic, excuse me, I don't know if you ever formally denied the faith, but he was raised Catholic, even considered becoming a priest. By the time he hit the age of 21, he had decided to join the Nazi party, and that once that decision was made, his future was sealed. But this study raises the question of how humans develop scar tissue on the soul, how their hearts become hardened, how they sear their conscience. Um, this, of course, uh, we always think of the Holocaust and the Nazis as extreme, right? They are something that we will never see again. Well, hopefully we will never see again. But it remains a focused problem for Catholics, 
and other Christians who believe that God is loving, that he's all-powerful. And so I want to go over a book that I read a while back that helps me come to grips with this. And this occurred to me back when I was still in college. It's a book called Night, and it's by the uh, the human rights activist and Holocaust survivor Elie Vassell. Uh, it's a historical novel, and it's based on his own concentration camp experience, and one of the most important books I read in the first half of my life. In it, uh, it's, the story is told through the eyes of a Jewish teenager, a student of the Talmud uh, from Hungarian Transylvania. And in the spring of 1944, the Nazis occupied Hungary. The Jews were rounded up. They were shipped out to the death camps of Birkenau and Auschwitz. And throughout the novel, uh, this teenager is reflecting on the nature of God in response to the atrocities that he's witnessing. He's really a stand-in figure for Elie Vassell himself. And in the fourth chapter of the book, there's a pivotal scene which describes the execution of three Jews. One of them is a 13 or 14-year-old who was a servant assistant to a Dutchman. Um, And this Dutchman uh, was a trustee and uh, was given certain privileges uh, by the Nazis, but then was suspected of sabotage. And after he was tortured and killed, they went for this little 13 or 14-year-old. In fact, this little 13 or 14-year-old, Vassell says, had the face of an angel in distress. And when his master uh, was killed for supposedly sabotaging a power plant, this young servant, 13, 14 years old, was left in solitary confinement, and then he too was tortured. Uh, And he also did not uh, he, he did not claim that he was part of the sabotage. He denied it. He remained silent. And so he was condemned to death. And uh, two other inmates uh, were found to have possessed arms, and they were condemned to death with him. So one day, uh, as Vassell tells the story, they returned from work, and they saw three gallows, like three black ravens, erected on the place where roll call was customarily taken. The SS uh, surrounded them. Machine guns were aimed at them. It was the usual ritual. And there were three prisoners in chains, and among them, this little sad-eyed angel figure. And the SS seemed more preoccupied, more worried than usual, because to hang a child in front of thousands of onlookers was not a small matter, even for Nazis. The head of the camp read the verdict. All eyes were on the child. He was pale, almost calm, but you could see he was biting his lip as he stood in the shadow of the gallows. And this time, the trustee, who had been chosen from among the inmates to be the executioner, refused. So three SS men took his place. The three condemned prisoners together stepped onto the chairs in unison. The nooses were placed around their necks. Long live liberty, shouted the two men. The boy remained silent. Where is merciful God? Where is he? Someone behind me was asking. At the signal, the three chairs were tipped over. Total silence in the camp. On the horizon, the sun was setting. Caps off, screamed the camp leader, his voice quivering. As for the rest of us, we were weeping. 
Then came the march past the victims. The two men were no longer alive. Their tongues were hanging out, swollen and bluish. But the third rope was still moving. The child, too light, was still breathing. And so he remained for more than half an hour, lingering between life and death, writhing before our eyes. And we were forced to look at him at close range. He was still alive when I passed him. His tongue was still red. His eyes had not yet extinguished. And behind me, I heard the same man asking, for God's sake, where is God? And from within me, I heard a voice answer, where he is? This is where, hanging here from this gallows. That night, the soup tasted of corpses. Now, I don't know what Elie Vassell intended this passage to mean, but I do remember the first time I read it. I had just become a follower of Jesus. And I remember saying, you're right. That is where God is. He's hanging there on the gallows, uh, three executions taking place, the innocent figure of Christ flanked by the two guilty thieves, like this boy, a Jew killed by agents of the government. Where is God? Well, God's not immediately obvious in the crucifixion of Jesus. But for those with ears to hear and eyes to see, uh, Jesus is there crying out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the midst of this kind of suffering, I've seen this happen to people. And they die to all their previous conceptions of God. And they say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. That's how it begins. But those are not the final words of the psalm. And in fact, when the Christian sees the suffering of the innocent like this, they see a model of Jesus, the incarnate Savior, crucified. But again, death is not the last word. The Christ is resurrected, and by means of the Holy Spirit, reconstitutes his body on the earth as a sign of the kingdom to come. Now, philosophical answers to this problem of evil and suffering don't work very well in terms of persuading people. They can be quite rational, but they're not necessarily comforting. Uh, And that's because evil itself doesn't submit to easy explanation. Evil itself is irrational. And it's perfectly legitimate to say, which standard Catholic teaching says, perfectly legitimate to say that God permits evil because he will create a greater good than could have been achieved if evil had not been permitted. But it's hard to imagine, I mean, let's face it, at an emotional level, it's hard to imagine what kind of good could possibly come from the suffering of infants, say. I mean, it isn't as though we could take so many units of unmerited suffering and say, okay, We've taken inventory, and this much suffering will produce this much blessing. Well, that's not, a, that's not a bad bargain. I mean, that's just not the way we think about suffering or evil. Um, we don't have a perfectly satisfying answer. What we do have is Jesus, a crucified Savior, God with us. Because in Jesus, God shows us that he's very much committed to this human project. He's not taken by surprise by evil. He undergoes the evil himself, just like us. The answer to Elie Vassell's story, uh, where is God, is that God is there. 
He's there in the front of most Catholic churches hanging on a cross, just like that young 13 or 14-year-old was hanging in the gallows. The crucified Christ is also the Eucharistic Lord. In other words, that's the kind of intimacy that comes to us through the crucified Christ, his body, his blood, now offered to us in Eucharist. No other religion reveals God so clearly in the midst of suffering. So while we might not have a great, quote, philosophical answer, because, again, they don't console, we do have the reassurance that the suffering in the end is worth it because there will be a time of glory that makes this time of suffering seem small in comparison. That's the promise of St. Paul in Romans chapter 8. And look, we don't often feel it during suffering. Um, that's what suffering's about, right? In suffering, we're cut loose from all of our certainties, uh, our assurances. That's what makes it suffering. <laughs> it's because we don't have a, a lot of the reasons working for us. But even the face of evil, we have to affirm that God is with us. And at times, we will find ourselves saying what Jesus said from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that only begins the psalm. The psalm goes on to become a psalm of triumph and proclamation. The kingship belongs to the Lord, the ruler over the nations. All who go down to the dust will kneel in homage, and I will live for the Lord. My descendants will serve you. The generation to come will be told of the Lord that they may proclaim to a people yet unborn the deliverance you have brought. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. How are we treating God? Are we treating him like a magic wand? a rabbit's foot, only going to him when we need something. The results if we don't stay in a relationship with God, and I know this from personal experience, much of the suffering that I had in my life has been brought on by my own stupid mistakes. We have to have God front and center of our life every day. As Father Michael Schmidt says, we're all called to be saints. We have to stand up and fight. We can't just grab God when we need something. He's not a slot machine. Putting coins in, then pulling the one arm band and expecting to win a big prize. We have to have that relationship with God so we can truly do His will and be truly happy. So follow Him, not just once in a while, but every single moment. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. What constitutes hope? The Catholic Catechism tells us when God fully reveals Himself and calls man... Man cannot respond on his own. He must hope that God will give him the capacity to love and respond and act in conformity with the commandment of charity. Hope confidently expects divine blessing and the beatific vision of God while fearing to offend him and incur punishment. Despair is a sin against hope because when a man despairs, he ceases to hope for his eternal salvation, which denies God's goodness, justice, and mercy. The sin of presumption, on the other hand, assumes God will give you forgiveness without conversion and glory without merit or presumes that man can win his salvation with no supernatural assistance. 
This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. The devil will always do his best to tempt you into sin until you get to that place where you love sin. That's what he wants. He wants you down there with him. And not because he loves you, he hates you. When you do what the enemy tempts you to do, he does it out of pure hatred. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. The Heart of the Interior Life with Elizabeth Jingle. St. Ignatius of Loyola encourages us in the sixth rule of his 14 rules for the discernment of spirits to practice much examination when we are experiencing spiritual desolation. We may find ourselves in the struggle of spiritual desolation, uncertain as to how it even began. Practicing much examination is to go within our hearts and ask, when did this desolation begin? Instead of distracting ourselves to avoid the difficulty of going within, practicing much examination redirects us from diversion and causes us to look at the source of the spiritual desolation. Father Timothy Gallagher writes, The much examination that Ignatius counsels here directly counters such flight into diversion. In the time of the spiritual desolation itself, we interiorly stop and ask, What is happening in my heart? Am I in spiritual desolation? What action will help me to reject it? For more information, visit AveMariaRadio.net. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. There are many uh, stories of resistance to the Third Reich. Uh, One of the best-known stories, of course, is the story of Anne Frank and her family, and there are many, many other stories of uh, resistance uh, to uh, Hitler's regime. And one of the people um, that we have talked about in the past on this program, but haven't given a tremendous amount of attention to, uh, is Sophie Scholl. Uh, Hans and Sophie Scholl were part of the White Rose Resistance in Nazi Germany. With me right now is Dr. Paul Shrimpton. He's author of Conscience Before Conformity, which is a look at uh, Hans and Sophie Scholl and uh, their story. And Dr. Shrimpton, good to have you with me. Thanks. Good day. So, Tell me a little bit about the uh, the upbringing, the fa- family upbringing of the Shoals. Well, there were five children in the Shoal household. Um, Hans and Sophie were the second and the fourth of them. Um, mother was a Lutheran, a bit older than Dad. Um, she brought her children up as Bible-reading Christians, um, father wasn't really very religious. He was a pacifist who refused to fight in the First World War mm-hmm. and uh, operated ambulances. But he had a great um, sort of respect for freedom and um, instilled in his in his five children 
um, a love for the truth, I would say. Uh, the um, In growing up, um, he, he was, when the, the Nazis came to power in 33, in January 33, he was vehemently um, anti-Hitler, um, but perhaps surprisingly, all five of his children joined the Hitler Youth, either the men's section or the boys' section or the girls' section. Were they uh, enthusiastic? Were they enthusiastic members? They were not just enthusiastic. Um, they were just so keen that both Hans and Sophie became group leaders. So wow. Hans, um, and they, they joined when it was voluntary, and Hans um, was in charge of about 150 other boys, sort of their indoctrination sessions when they would typically listen on the radio to a National Socialist um, weekly broadcast, along with many other young people throughout the country. Hmm. He was the flag bearer for his town in, in 1935 when they went to Nuremberg for the big rally there with about 200,000 uh, other young people where they were listening to the ranting Nazi officials in this, this huge stadium they built there. Wow, so they were... Sophie was somehow in the same mold. That, um, she, too, was in charge of girls. Um, but there was one key moment with her where there was an inspection by an older Nazi who came along and listened and then found that Sophie was um, encouraging her girls to read Jewish poetry, uh, which was certainly forbidden. Mm, interesting. So they were all in. What? When did they become disillusioned with the uh, you know nazism there's no particular point you can identify um the major influence i think is father and listening to him speak openly in their household that he he had arguments for what was going on the rearmament he said didn't need to happen sure it was reducing unemployment but there were other ways of doing it. And he, he was very politically minded, uh, very up-to-date with all the news, and sort of made sense of that for his children and gradually won them over. But at the same time, um, they, the, the children, especially Hans and Sophie, were just becoming disillusioned with what they saw um, at school and the, the, the sheer amount of regimentation that there was, which was actually growing over time in the Hitler Youth. And for Hans, the key moment was possibly the 35 Nuremberg rally, where he, he found the levels of conformity expected of him and everyone else uh, stifling uh, to the human spirit. So That's... I'd say those two things, the father and just their growing realization of what was going on. It sounds as though the family uh, valued uh, learning, uh, discussion, uh, engagement. Uh, were there particular uh, writers that were important uh, in their formation? Initially not, no. They were encouraged to be very widely read, to, to take up musical instruments, to sing, to, to have a love for the outdoor life. Um, they read um, amazingly. There were bookworms. They, <laughs> they, they covered so much ground from a very early age, but it wasn't early on directed in, towards any particular type of author. Um, 
when they began to change, the house, their household became a magnet for all, so, all sorts of other young people, kindred spirits, where they could talk openly about what was going on over meals, and the regime was criticised, which was highly unusual, uh, led by father, of course, mm-hmm. and he would often leave dinner saying, um, excuse me, children, I've got to earn, go and earn myself a jail sentence, <laughs> by which he meant listening to uh, the BBC radio broadcast, which was uh, strictly illegal to listen to. Wow. How dangerous was it uh, for people uh, to talk openly, even within their homes, about uh, the shortcomings of uh, Hitler's regime? I mean, was this something they were... They, they were especially... Uh, Threat was the threat of Nazi infiltration of the home uh, strong. In theory, um, children could report their parents uh, to the authorities, but it virtually never happened. Actually, okay. Um, they certainly couldn't speak openly at school, um, and yes, as they moved up through their teenage years, they became more aware of the threat. Um, Every group of houses, every block of flats had its own informer, Mm. um, and that the Gestapo fed off these. They weren't proactive as a police force. Um, They just fed off um, informants and what they said. Unfortunately, um, early on, the Scholes weren't informed on, but eventually they were. And even before the White Rose began, their house was gone over, by the Gestapo, and they they found banned literature, illegal songs, non-German songs, especially um, Russian ones, Um, and they were taken in and interrogated and kept in for a few days and then put out again. Um, They were also found to be involved with illegal youth groups as well as belonging to the Hitler Youth. So they were roughed over a few times before they really began to get going on their resistance work. Hmm. Uh, when, when did the... Wh- what was the White Rose? What was the symbology there? Uh, what was its origin? Well, a, group, a small group of people, it was mainly Han Scholl initially, and a half-German, half-Russian friend, a fellow medic called Alex Schmorl. Uh, the two of them, in June... Um, 1942 um, wrote in a space of two weeks um, four leaflets which are essentially typed on two sides of a piece of paper and then duplicated and sent in their hundreds to anonymously to various houses um, in in Munich. Um, They wrote these leaflets, they uh, sourced the paper, got the stamps illegally um, themselves, who are very, very dangerous. Um, and yes, they call these the, the leaflets of the White Rose. Nobody quite knows uh, the reason. There are something like three or four different reasons, including one which just says there was no meaning behind the White Rose itself. <laughs> okay. Um, so in that sense, uh, not having any pre preordained meaning uh, left it um, open for people to speculate what was behind it, Mm -hmm. I suppose. Yes. I mean, one possible interpretation was um, it was the opposite to the brown and the black uh, 
of of the um, the SS and the mm-hmm. SA, mm-hmm. Uh, Nazi dirt, you could say, um, and somehow the White Rose was a sign of purity. Hans had got into trouble and at some stage had written uh, an extraordinary poem to Our Lady, um, which could be linked to this, but I don't think we're ever going to be able to prove it one way or the other. And he did that as a Lutheran, yeah. uh, which was most unusual. For That's what time. I was wondering. That was just after he'd been released um, from, from, I suppose he'd been locked up for about three months, yeah. Wow. Uh, how old uh, How old was Hans when he began writing the leaflets? So he'd be either 22 or 23. Okay. And Sophie? Um, well, it's not sure she ever um, wrote any of the leaflets. She okay. helped in distributing them. And when <laughs> the first four were written in June, July 42, and I, there were really six of them involved, four of them had to go off to the Russian front because they were studying medicine at university um, in term time, but in vacation time, they were in field hospitals just I behind see. the uh, the war front. So work resumed in December and January, going 42 to 43. And initially, the first four, they only sent out maybe a couple of hundred of each. But once they came back from the Russian front and got much more organized and turned up the heat, there, they were sent out about 10,000 of each but then the six of them went all around southern Germany and Austria at great risk carrying suitcases and rucksacks full of the, this banned literature. Wow. Um, um, at great risk to their lives, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so in, uh, it, they begin distributing them, um, a few hundred of them, in June and July of 1942, and then um, four of the group are sent off uh, to work in field hospitals. Uh, mm-hmm. on the Russian front, when they return in December of 42 and in January of 43, they really up uh, up the production, and now they're distributing 10,000 each uh, of the uh, uh, leaflets. How many were how many were there altogether, leaflets? Um, there were four initially called White Rose leaflets. In the second batch, there were two only, but they'd removed the title White Rose, possibly because they didn't want the Gestapo to trace the origin yeah. of Munich, where the first four had appeared. Gotcha. Let's have it. Dr. Shrimpton, hold it there a minute. We'll take a quick break and come back. Hello, Steve Ray here. Everything in the Bible and in the Catholic Church starts with a book of Genesis. It reveals to us God's plan for mankind. Yet Genesis can be daunting, especially given the scientific discoveries of the last few centuries. Well, that's where I come in with my new book, Genesis, a Bible study guide and commentary. Discover a thoroughly Catholic approach to this exciting and dramatic ancient narrative that is so often misunderstood. You can get the book now on the store page at AveMariaRadio.net. Check it out. Accidents are the leading cause of life-threatening injuries, but few Americans are prepared. My Life Angels creates your pro-life health care durable power of attorney. 
accessible anytime on smartphones, and alerts loved ones if you enter a hospital ER, empowering them to protect you. You can protect yourself and your family. Use code AVE at checkout today, and My Life Angels will donate 35% of your initial membership to Ave Maria Radio. More information at MyLifeAngels.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Welcome to Spirit of Stewardship. Jeremy Belsky is your host for real-life stories, encouragement, and ideas to enhance your own gifts of work, wealth, and wisdom in response to God's blessings for you. I'm Jeremy Belsky, and today's topic is Stewardship of the Environment, God's Creation of Nature. When you hear the message, Be a Wise Steward of Your Resources, do you ever consider the role you play in your community environment? It's natural to think of time, talent, and treasure when stewardship is mentioned, but our faith teaches us that all is gift from God. Thus, respect for nature and doing our part to ensure a safe and clean environment is important. Here are just three areas we can pay more attention. A lot of action has been taken in recent years by nonprofits geared towards a cleaner environment. The first area of focus is to eliminate litter. Consider how your actions to pick up after yourself are pleasing to God Be proud to do your part to keep your community and neighborhood clean. Secondly, look at ways to recycle and make the most out of your purchases. Does it matter to you that so much plastic consumes our landfills? Have you given thought as to how you can make a particular purchase last longer? Third, in a country filled with abundance, what's being done to ensure our nature and environment for the next generation? This is more than eating bread crust and cleaning off your plate. The root lies in not wasting what we've been given. There's a great deal of time and effort that goes into caring for our place of residence in addition to our possessions. Keeping up what is ours or giving our used possessions to the less fortunate are a couple of ways to be prudent stewards of our blessings from God. I'm Jeremy Belsky, your host for Spirit of Stewardship. To learn how you can better share your talents and resources, contact your local parish priest. Your level of involvement in the church now positively impacts our faith in the future. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Dr. Paul Shrimpton, is the author of Conscience Before Conformity, Hans and Sophie Scholl in the White Rose Resistance in Nazi Germany. This is a story which, uh, in the United States, is not as well known as it, I think it needs to be. By the way, how well is the story of the Scholes understood in uh, in Germany today? The Scholes um, themselves and, and the White Rose group, resistance group, household names. Every single young and middle-aged German knows all about them in great detail. 
they and the Adam von Trott July 44 plot to assassinate Hitler are the two iconic ways in which the Germans tried to bring Hitler down. So extremely well known. I mean, nearly 200 schools named after Sophie Scholl alone. Mm-hmm. And then you've got to add into that streets and squares. There are three films made about the White Rose and the last one, which was, uh, came out in 2005, was nominated for an Oscar for the best foreign film. There are stamps as well about them. So they are household yeah. names in Germany, less so outside Germany, of course. Right, right. The July 44 plot, was that the one with uh, von Stauffenberg? Exactly, yes. Okay. Yeah. So he's well known there as well. And what about the, the Lutheran theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Is he well known as well? Yes, quite well known. There are links between the Shoals and and them, because towards the end, Hans tried to link up with all the resistance movements across Germany, and on the day he was executed, he had an appointment in Berlin, I think, with the brother of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Wow. I did not know that. Mm. Hmm. What was the content, the material, that were contained in the leaflets? What What was the type of argument? What was the style of presentation? The style changed, I would say. The very first one really read like a student essay, very amateur indeed, okay. pitched at an academic audience. But essentially they were calling on fellow Germans to resist Hitler, insisting again and again that they had a moral duty to stand up in a passive way, in the sense that they were calling people to non-violent resistance. But the calls just got stronger and stronger each time. So towards the end, they were calling people to sabotage production lines and things like that, but never calling people to violence itself. And they were invoking classical authors, biblical images. Mm-hmm. And in the first four, they were drawing effectively off the somebody called Theodor Hecker, who was the main interpreter and translator of John Henry Newman in Germany. Really? So in fact, the fourth one, there are expressions there which you could say, you could argue, are Newmanian. That's, that's remarkable. What was the relationship between Catholic resistance to Hitler and non-Catholic uh, resistance to Hitler in Germany? Did they uh, know one um, another? I have read up on this as background reading to my book, and actually spoken to one of the main authors, the leading Oxford man, on Nazi Germany. Um, it would appear from, and I think he, he would call himself Jewish, if anything, that Christian resistance was generally greater than the average resistance of the standard German household, and within the Christian context that the Catholics put up the most resistance. But in each area, there was a huge spectrum of levels to which people would go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there was essentially a huge amount of conformity, and one has to, <laughs> thinking about it and putting oneself in the position, it was just so incredibly difficult to do anything at all. I mean, looking back on it, it was so praiseworthy. It's easy for us just to sit in armchairs and wonder why they didn't do more. But frankly, it was extremely difficult. Well, it's difficult to even uh, imagine the kind of culture that they were mm-hmm. involved in, and, and uh, in the United States anyways. It's hard for us to even imagine the kind of dictator that Hitler was 
in what life would be like there. And so uh, that itself is a problem. And then to take a look at heroic resistance, again, forces us to uh, stretch even, even farther. How were they found out? They were captured on the 18th of February, 1943. I mean, the who had been on their trail right from the word go, because if you received anything through your letterbox, it had to be reported. It could be some a neighbor trying to set you up to test out whether you were loyal. So there was a huge emphasis on handing in any subversive literature whatsoever. In January and February 43, there were many, many more of these. The Gestapo had assumed that this was now an international organization operating within Germany with funds coming from abroad and must be some huge they just seemed to be so well organized. They assumed they were just a, a large group of people operating with great expertise. They had a clue that it was just four or five students who'd somehow come by duplicating machines, typewriters, somehow managed to get stationary in little bits and pieces, stamps and so on, and beg people for money. It was really a totally amateur yeah. organization. But it was right at the end. I should, I should add that when... Between the 5th and the, and the 6th leaflet, the four or three of them went on graffiti operations by night in Munich, carrying paint and daubing up 30 or 40 anti-Hitler slogans all around the centre of town. Down with Hitler, Hitler the mass murderer, Nazi signs crossed out, and they did this on three successive occasions. So it was extremely dangerous. But right at the end, after writing and duplicating and then distributing the sixth leaflet, Hans wanted to go on the most dangerous mission to date, which was to actually take the leaflets into his university, Munich University, which was guarded, carry them in in their thousands, and distribute them from inside. And the, his two main helpers, Willy Graf and Alex Schmorrell, both said it was too dangerous, but Sophie immediately said, I'll help you. So they entered Munich University about 11 o'clock on Thursday the 18th of February with several thousand in suitcases. It was between lectures and they went around all the lecture halls depositing piles of the leaflets outside. And it was really right at the end of that. It, they'd succeeded and they were just about to leave when Sophie realized they had a few left and decided she would throw them down the main stairwell. And they went fluttering down and she was spotted by the caretaker Ooh. there. And immediately the building was sealed off and the Gestapo moved in. And yes, they were then taken in. But initially the authorities thought it must be a mistake because the shoals were so cultivated. They were archetypal Aryans, the sort of people that the regime sort of praised itself on producing. They couldn't believe that this upper middle class group of people could possibly do anything like this. Was Sophie taken into custody first? The pair of them were acting together. And okay. They were both taken in and then interrogated over the next three and a half days. And what was the outcome of the interrogation? Were they imprisoned or were they immediately executed? Okay, so <laughs> the film, Sophie Scholl, The Final Days, actually focuses on her in the final six days of her life. And this is all heavily based on the Gestapo files on the White Rose, which were discovered just after the Berlin Wall came down in 90 or 91. So everything, every inter interrogation script practically, court proceeding, is all there, wow. heavily documented. So we know exactly what happened, 
what was said throughout the days and nights when they were interrogated. Initially, they each they were separated, obviously, different interrogators, and they were just plied with questions, and they both made up stories which seemed to hold good, but meanwhile, their flat was raided, and there they found duplicating material, address lists, account books, stamps in colossal numbers, even a gun in Hamza's drawer. And at that point, they realized they were caught. They then tried to turn all the blame onto themselves and cover for everyone else who'd been involved. The Gestapo couldn't really get anything else out, but they pulled in about 100 other people on the fringes, and one or two of them cracked under pressure and divulged the names of the, the key participants. So they were taken in on the Thursday... By the Sunday, it was all wrapped up, and three of them, on Hitler's orders, were tried on the Monday morning. It was a show trial. The hanging judge of Hitler was brought down from Berlin to conduct this, and it was the courtroom was stuffed with soldiers. It was a show trial, and just after lunchtime, they were convicted, sentenced to death by guillotining, and about four o'clock in the afternoon, Sophie, Hans, and Christoph Props were beheaded. Uh. Uh, what became of uh, the father? Well, he survived. I mean, mum and dad did see them just exceptionally just before they were executed. Protocol broke down, deeply moving. Mother never really recovered, but father was made of much tougher stuff yeah. and lived much longer. They, they were obviously distraught, utterly yeah. distraught. Yeah. yeah, I can imagine. Did Sophie or Hans offer much of a defense when they were interrogated? Their defense is quite extraordinary. It really is. They had spent two, three, four years thinking, arguing, discussing every aspect of what they were living through, trying to make sense of it. So things like Leibniz, the Odyssey, could, there, could a good God allow so much suffering to take place and allow so much evil? In search of meaning, they'd abandoned the German poets and writers of their time and sought answers in Socrates and then turned to Augustine, wow. Pascal, Thomas Aquinas, the French Renouveau Catholic movement, and then John Henry Newman. Mm -hmm. So you see in the interviews, they are incredibly articulate in batting the, the answers back and defending themselves. A friend of mine who <laughs> is a fellow in law at, at uh, one of the colleges in Oxford he gets his students once in their three years to analyze the interrogation of Sophie Shaw because it's textbook answers on how someone deals with um, a regime which is legitimate from a legal point of view, but which is enacting evil laws. So, no, they, they were extraordinary, these two. That's beautiful. And then uh, in closing, when did the German people become aware after the war? of their heroic efforts. When did they become national figures? Mm, that's a difficult question to answer because it didn't really happen at any one moment. Ingersoll, the eldest of the five, who became a Catholic shortly after their death, she wrote the first book towards the end of the 50s. That really helped to get things going. Mm -hmm. In the 80s, there were two films about them. That was another time when their profile was raised but then after the Gestapo files were discovered and that film Sophie Scholl The Final Days came about, that was probably the biggest boost. All tied in with Germans making sense of what they had lived through and people finding different answers to that and different ways of educating the young people. 
The Shoals are really national heroes. What is less known and is underplayed is the religious background to them, because um, the two Shoals were Lutherans, Willie Graff was a Catholic, Alex Schmorl was Orthodox. Uh, just before Hans and Sophie were executed, within an hour of their death, they both asked to be received into the Catholic Church. But in fact, it was too difficult to... There are two reasons given why that might have been impossible. One was the paperwork was too difficult. The other line given is that their mother was a Lutheran preacher and it would upset her if they changed religious allegiance. But yeah. they had become, by the end, extremely close to the, the Catholic Church. Why was that? What sense do you make of that? Oh, they were deeply disillusioned with the, their own church, and they saw the Catholic Church as offering so much more. In 1941, there was an extraordinary moment when the Archbishop of Munster, von Galen, gave three anti-Nazi sermons, the last of which attacked their euthanasia program, which had been operating since the beginning of the war. This effectively killed something like 80,000 handicapped or mentally ill adults and young people, the Scholl family knew all about it through their mother, who was a nurse. Um, no one who had stood up in, in public against this until the Catholic Archbishop of Munster did. And the altar servers all around Germany copied these sermons and distributed them to households, posting them through doors. And the Scholl family household received these sermons. And that is thought to have given the Scholls the idea of duplicating something and popping it through letterboxes or posting, and at the end of it, writing, make six more copies and pass them on. Hans, in particular, was deeply impressed by the example of this Catholic bishop. They were suspicious, I think, to some extent, wary of the institutional Catholic Church, which had different reactions. Sure. But above all, they were so impressed by the arguments which had gone in Augustine, Aquinas, Pascal, and Newman. They've been reading Newman, yeah. 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 It's an incredible story, and I've known about it for a few years now, and I'm interested in entering more deeply into it. And I really appreciate the time you took to, to be with me today, Dr. Crimpton, and we'll certainly talk again in the future. Thank you. Okay. Dr. Paul Shrimpton is author of Conscience Before Conformity, Hans and Sophie Scholl in the White Rose Resistance in Nazi Germany. I'm Al Cresta. The Catholic Church teaches that Jesus Christ is a literally and wholly present, body and blood, soul and divinity, under the appearances of bread and wine. Feeding 5,000 from a boy's five barley loaves and two fish, as recorded in John chapter 6, is quite a miracle. Yet the next day, Jesus downplays it in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Likewise, God's provision of manna to the Israelites in the desert was also a great miracle, yet Jesus similarly downplays it in verse 49. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus is clearly stating that his Eucharist is greater than both of these amazing miracles, and the Catholic Church absolutely takes him at his word. Examining the truths of the Catholic faith, this is faithforensics.org. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. You know, maybe we need to ask ourselves, do we really know Jesus? Maybe another way to ask that would be, how familiar are you with the Gospels? When I was living in D.C., I was on the plane, taking a late flight home, sitting next to a young girl. She was probably 16, 17. 
I had my collar on and we got talking and she said um, somehow in the course of the conversation she acknowledged that she was running away from home and was in the midst of uh, an awful lot of difficulties that were going on. Her story seemed to be remarkably akin to the story of the prodigal son, which we just heard this past Sunday at Mass, huh? And so I started to speak a little bit about that with her. And I said, you sound a little bit like the younger son in the story of the prodigal son. And she looked at me like I was from Mars. And I said, are you not familiar with the story of the prodigal son? And she says, no, never heard it. And I just looked at her and I says, oh my goodness, are you in for a wonderful evening? Thank you for joining us in that first hour. If you go to AveMariaRadio.net, you can follow up on those conversations that we had. We'll have uh, Paul Shrimpton's book available for you on the life of Sophie Scholl and the White Rose resistance to the Nazis. And you can also check out Al's commentary again, discussing where was God in the evil of Auschwitz. In the next hour, we look at the Dachau priest barracks and also Cynthia Skidova shares her testimony to life. All that coming up next hour on Cresta in the Afternoon after this break. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody. Happy Monday and welcome to another hour of Cresta in the Afternoon. As I uh, mentioned in the first hour, you uh, may have heard by now that Al and many of the other Ave Maria Radio hosts are out this week on the uh, Good News Marriage Cruise, giving some talks and other things. And so we'll be uh, looking back this week with some guest hosts and a few other things as well. And uh, today we are continuing our discussion. Saturday was uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Day. And in this first segment, we'll be talking with Father Joseph Fessio about the priest barracks of Dachau. Uh, these are priests, you know, everybody knows the story of Maximilian Kolbe. These are some other stories of priests who were murdered by the Nazis. Uh, three of the 30 barracks at the Dachau concentration camp were occupied by clergy, and of about the 2,700 men in prison there, almost 2,600 of them were Catholics. More than a third of the men in this priest block died there. Father Joseph Fessio joins us to share their stories. And then later in this hour, Cynthia Skidova joins us. She was raised in a fundamentalist brain of Protestant Christianity during the 60s and 70s, and as a, a teenager, she was drawn towards Eastern philosophies. A few years later, she found herself fully embracing the spirituality of the liberal movements of the 70s. She did eventually marry, though she did not want kids, but it was her first child that began her journey to the church. Cynthia shares that story with us later on in this hour after this news break. Thank you, Brian. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Monday, January 29th. It's the Feast of St. Gildas the Wise. And today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avemaria.edu. President Biden is weighing options to retaliate against Iranian-backed militants behind the drone strike in Jordan that killed three U.S. soldiers and injured dozens more. 
National Security Council spokesman John Kirby told reporters, Biden has been holding meetings with his national security team. He stressed that the U.S. is not looking to engage in war with Iran, which has denied involvement in the attack. New Jersey Congressman Josh Gottheimer is ramping up efforts to keep AM radio and electric vehicles. At a Tesla dealership today, the Democrat called on the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to require the sticker prices of electric vehicles without AM to include warnings that they're unsafe in certain emergencies. Gottheimer also said there's broad bipartisan support for a bill ensuring that AM is included in cars' features at no additional cost to the consumers. The Russian figure skating team will be stripped of its gold medals from the 2022 Beijing Olympics. The Court of Arbitration for Sport disqualified Russian skater Kamila Valiva from the 2022 Olympics Monday for a doping violation. The U.S. figure skating team finished second in the event and will now be named champion. Valiva had said she ingested the banned substance accidentally. And on this day in rock history, in 2016, three weeks after his death, David Bowie logged 12 albums in the UK Top 40, equaling a record set by Elvis Presley in 1977. From the Ave Maria Radio.net News Desk, I'm Dan McGraw. And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Probably the most famous priest to be killed by the Nazis is St. Maximilian Kolbe, who died at Auschwitz uh, in 1941. But uh, there were many priests uh, in concentration camps. Uh, at the Nazi camp, concentration camp at Dachau, for instance, there were actually three barracks out of 30 there that were occupied by clergy. This is from 1938 to 1945. And uh, while it wasn't exclusively Catholic priests, it was overwhelmingly Catholic priests. I think the numbers I see here were that there were uh, 2,700, uh, roughly 2,700 men in prison there, and uh, 2,600 of them were Catholics. So that gives you some idea of what we're looking at. Uh, and more than a third of those men ended up dying there. This story is told in a book called The Priest Barracks, Dachau, 1938 to 1945, um, by Yami Zeller. And Father Joseph Fessio joins us right now to to tell us this story. Father Fessio is the founder and editor of Ignatius Press, uh, earned his doctorate in theology at the University of Regensburg, where his thesis was directed by uh, Joseph Ratzinger. Father, good to have you back. Thanks. Hi. This is the first time I knew that there was this kind of concentration of priests at a concentration camp. I knew there were lots of priests, but I was unaware that uh, at Dachau you had these three barracks. Uh, Obviously, the Nazis saw Catholic priests as a a clan of some sort, or a certain class that needed to be separated out in some way. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, tell me why. It's not a it, obviously not a well-known fact, but people heard of Dachau in the, you know, as the concentration camp there. It's near Munich, and of course Auschwitz is the one that's, that's probably the best known. But uh, what really is very little known uh, is that at Dachau there were 30 barracks, and of those three were exclusively for clerics, priests, and bishops. And as you say, almost all of them were Roman Catholic. Yeah. Uh, so yes, uh, priests were a target in 
Nazi Germany. You know, there were some who who basically folded, who were, were coward, and so on. But there were also great heroes like uh, Karl Fallhaber in Munich mm-hmm. and the, the line of Munster, you know, Karl von Galen. Yeah, we talked about uh, him, sure. But priests, priests spoke out, and, uh, you know, or even if they implied they were opposed to the regime or were simply speaking out against the euthanasia program, I mean, they were put in DACA, and many of them died. A lot of them died and were tortured. Yeah. So this book, it's a good reminder of what totalitarian governments do. It, it, it was, I mean, clearly, Nazi Germany was hostile to Christianity and hostile especially to the Catholic Church uh, because they had their own religion, basically. The religion was race, right. blood, you know, the Aryan race and, and domination. So they couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't accept any especially some operation which was connected to other international groups like like Rome. It's mm-hmm. like China now. You know, they have the Patriotic Church, which is really kind of a false church, mm-hmm. uh, because bishops are, you know, are in league with the Chinese government. But uh, China, because it has a strong nationalism, even if it's not as communist as it was before, they do not want any organization which seems to take its, uh, you know, marching orders from someone outside the country. Yeah. So that was even more so in, in, in Hitler's day. Yeah, so he saw the church as uh, an organization that was uh, international. Uh, it couldn't, it would not submit to uh, the agenda of uh, Hitler and the Nazi party. And uh, those who represented the Catholic Church then were assumed, right? They were assumed to be uh, opponents, or at least inclined to be opponents of the regime. Right, and that they they wouldn't be put in the shelf simply for being a Catholic priest, like happened in in, in England, you know, in the 16th century. But uh, priests were highly suspect. You know, the Nazis had people going to mass and going to the other sacraments to listen to see what the priest said. And if there's anything which indicated this priest was was hostile to the regime or was even indicating something wrong with the regime, then uh, they were arrested. Yeah. Now, uh, von Gawen was, an, was a, an example of something else. He was a bishop of Münster, and he was so beloved by the thousands and thousands and thousands of really faithful Catholics that Hitler knew he couldn't do anything. And so von Gawen got away with preaching against euthanasia, with mm-hmm. preaching against the regime. And they, uh, you know, they couldn't do anything about it. I mean, they didn't do anything about it anyway. Whereas, you know, uh, a parish priest would not have that kind of support. Uh, he might have his parish behind him, but yeah. that's not enough yeah. to keep the SS out of your out of your rectory. This is part of the story that needs to be told because yes. the Catholic Church, on the one hand, uh, was seen as as hostile to the regime, which is a good sign that yeah. the Catholic Church was faithful. Secondly. Catholics supported the Jews, and it's true that it wasn't really clearly known in early part of the war what was happening to the Jews, but they were being deported, they knew that, and Kristallnacht, uh, you know, was, was, they were aware of that. So it was the Catholic Church, and many of her priests and others as well, but who spoke out publicly to support our brothers, the Jews. Yeah. So it wasn't as if they're anti-Semitic, no, they're pro-Semitic, and that got them into Dachau. Yeah. Yeah, that put them on the wrong side, as far as the Nazis were concerned. It did. By the way, there's another story about that. It's not in this book, but I, you know, I, I was in uh, Germany for a couple of years doing my doctorate, and I went, I visited Dachau, 
there there is a Carmelite cloister at the back of Daco, at least there was, where the nuns prayed that, you know, if there were a bombing attack, that the, the, that the bombs would hit the Carmelites and not and not the prisoners. Mm. And that's what happened. And it was destroyed and the Carmelites died. And it's a beautiful story of self-sacrificing nuns who, really? you know, prayed that the bombs would fall on them rather than the prisoners. Yeah. But... Yeah. Uh, I mean, people often say, "Why didn't you bomb the? Why didn't they bomb the concentration camps?" Well, you don't bomb the concentration camps because you kill all the prisoners, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, what they should have bombed was the railroads going into yeah. the concentration. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, and anyway, how did they? Uh, did they? Were they able to perform uh, the liturgy uh, while they were there? Uh, they were, at least sometimes they were. Uh, and 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 matter of fact, one of the things that the Germans did to create hostility towards the priest was give them privileges which the other people didn't have. Uh, they didn't have to work as much, you know. They had a different order, and so that and you know they wanted the priest wanted to be with the other prisoners and work with them and everything. But the Nazis very cunningly, cleverly said, "No, no, we're not. We're going to we're going to give special privileges so that there'd be hostility towards somebody from the other prisoners." Huh. Wow. That's a nasty, uh, nasty yeah. uh, effort to there. So w- I would assume then that the, the the ministry of the priest to other prisoners was somewhat limited. It, w- it was definitely limited, but it took place. And there were, you know, clandestine, I mean, prisoners would be able to go up, walk by and get, get communion, you know, clandestinely, wow. or get, get confessions heard, you know, absolution, uh, you know, while they're walking, because the priest did, did do work. But sometimes it was the easier work in the kitchen, that sort of stuff, carrying slop buckets. But they hear confessions doing that. There's a lot, a lot of heroism. Of course, priests are human too. So you have, you have uh, stories of that are untoward stories sure. there of priests kind of uh, informing others or trying to get privileges for themselves. But, you know, uh, here's something I would say, quoting the Pope, which I don't like what he, he said, but I, who am I to judge? When you're in a concentration camp, you're not, not well fed, you don't sleep, you're working hard. I mean, the tensions, the pressures are right. so great. Right. But that just makes the, the, the ones who resisted all the more heroic. Indeed, indeed. It's, it's troubling to me that the past is really slipping away from us. It's amazing uh, surveys that are taken um, showing people's unfamiliarity with our past, even our recent past. The point is that the consequences of World War II were with us throughout the Cold War. Uh, again, the, the victory that the West had in the Cold War is still being sorted out today. Uh, so I'm just curious, do, do, uh, is there a lot of, do you find a lot of interest for history like this? Well, interest, yes, but one of the problems with history, Alice, is too much of it. It keeps growing. Yeah. So obviously, you know, uh, no one can, can grasp or absorb it all. Uh, but then the second problem is the attention span of uh, these people in the West has gotten shorter and shorter. Mm-hmm. And you can't really learn history on tweets, yeah. you know, or by yeah. text messaging or on Instagram. I mean, you have to sit down and, and get a book and yep. read it or, or watch a documentary. You have to invest some time. But it's fascinating because we're learning about the whole human race, which is the, meant to be the body of Christ. It's meant to be incorporated in Christ. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as a famous uh, Roman philosopher 
Jesus said, Nihil humanum alienum est miki. Nothing which is human is alien to me. That we, yeah. should, we should take an interest in every culture, you know, every historical event. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't do them all, but certainly in the last couple of centuries, World War II and the Nazi uh, regime ought to be something that everybody knows about. Yeah. Because yeah. But history, they say it doesn't exactly repeat itself, but it rhymes. Do you know uh, how how the Holy Father, how the 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 hierarchical church viewed these barracks? Were they aware of them? Do you think? Oh yes, they, they definitely were because priests were disappearing, and going, and they could write letters. You know, I mean, okay. it, it wasn't it wasn't like solitary confinement. I mean, they they could write letters and they could receive packages too. Uh, so it was it was known, but you know the. What could the church do? You speak out against this, and you're in jail yourself. And right. that was a difficult thing for Pope Pius XII. He had to clandestinely or secretly help so many Jews, but he couldn't really publicly criticize Hitler indirectly because he knew what would happen. The church would be persecuted again. Just like he spoke out in Holland, and then you know, they, they, they deported all these Christian mm-hmm. uh, and especially Jewish converts like Peter Stein and right. put him to death. Right. So it makes it hard, you know, to speak out. It seems to me there's this there's a narrative that we can tell as Catholics about you know the recent history, the last hundred years or so, and it's it, there's a heroic story which I think is lost and is not we're not picking it up. But homeschool uh, families often do maintain this sense of recent history. You mentioned uh, Edith Stein, for instance. Uh, you, I know that you do a lot with educators. Do you see a recovery of this narrative of heroic uh, Catholics under persecution? Oh, absolutely, and especially, I mean, I'm a big promoter of the homeschool movement. I, right. you know, not everybody can do it, but I've seen so many beautiful results of it. And even here at Right Ignatius Press, our, in our accounting department, head of that, Glendudo, uh, and his wife, who's an editor here, Vivian, they homeschool four kids. And I, those those two the two boys Thomas and, and Stephen they would you know they they love World War Two and went, one night we had a dinner at a place we crossed from the press we said we'd be dinner there and we invited this guy who was coming through town he had just finished his doctorate in American history World War Two and the boys were about like like nine and eleven <laughs> this afternoon let's have a little contest here okay here's, here's what we'll do. <laughs> You boys, you ask a question about World War II, and you know, you guys, this PhD, you try and answer, you, you can't answer it, then they get a point. If you can, then you get a point. And then you ask that kid <laughs> a question. Well, well, Al, we watched this for 45 minutes, nip and tuck back and forth, <laughs> and only at the very end did this PhD, you know, finally win. Wow. <laughs> That's great. Father, thank you very much. Uh, right, again, done, we'll, uh, we'll talk soon. Father Joseph Fessio, talking about this outstanding publication from Ignatius Press called The Priest Barracks. It's a look at three barracks full of priests and bishops at Dachau, 1938 to 1945. Christ is the Answer with Father John Ricardo. John 14. This is Jesus in the upper room with the disciples before he's going out to his sacrifice of himself for our salvation. And Philip says to the Lord, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. Jesus looks at Philip and says, Philip, have I been with you all this time? Don't you understand? When you see me, 
you're looking at the Father. In fact, only two people throughout human history have given rise to the question, not who is he, but what is he? The two people are Buddha and Jesus. Buddha's answer was, don't come to me, don't look to me, look to my doctrine, look to what I teach. Jesus' answer was, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart. Jesus is explicitly claiming to be God. 60 on 10 with Monsignor Charles Pope. The first commandment, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no strange gods before me. In this commandment, God seeks to protect us from false claims to our worship and obedience. And there are, there's a great sad history of people who have trusted in gods other than him or things other than him and the ruin that it has caused. So God is trying to protect us and call us to an absolute trust and obedience of him. He asks us to trust him above all things and above all other people or so-called gods. We have to also avoid things like consulting horoscopes, palm reading, clairvoyance, recourse to mediums, any desire to try to control things apart from God. God simply says, trust me, I'm the Lord your God. The first commandment, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no strange gods before me. For more about the Ten Commandments, visit EWTNRC.com. He was a doctor of the church and one of the most famous saints of all time. Matthew Bunsen and the Doctors of the Church. St. Augustine is honored for his immense contributions to theology, but he balanced his genius with humility. Once declared it was pride that changed angels into devils, it is humility that makes men as angels. He died in 461. For more about the Doctors of the Church, visit doctorsofthechurch.com. We are the pro-life generation, passionate about building the culture of life in our health care and in our nation. But not all health care options are equally pro-life, and some provide morally objectionable procedures. CMF Curo is different. CMF Curo is a pro-life Catholic health care ministry, providing a pathway for its members to build the culture of life in their health care choices, not destroy it. Learn more about CMF Curo at MyCatholicHealthCare.com. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com. The following program is brought to you in part by MyCatholicWill.com. Surveys show that more than half of Americans do not have a will. At MyCatholicWill.com, it takes as little as 15 minutes to write your will and secure a legacy of faith. MyCatholicWill.com is the exclusive online destination for creating a Catholic will. The process of writing a will is simple and now more accessible than ever. MyCatholicWill.com, a legacy of faith for those you love. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. It's always good to hear stories of how people are drawn into full communion. It's always good to hear how they come to an encounter with Jesus and then drawn into full communion with his church. My guest, Cynthia uh, Skadova, 
was raised in a fundamentalist branch of Protestant Christianity during the 60s and 70s, and as a teenager, she was drawn toward nature mysticism and Eastern philosophies, and a few years later, she found herself fully embracing the spirituality of the liberal movements of the 70s and 80s. She did eventually marry, though she didn't want kids, but it was with her first child that began her journey to the Catholic Church. She joined us now. She works as a neuromuscular therapist with a background in fine and language arts. In fact, served as a high school teacher for a while. Also a horse farmer and a monk in progress. Uh, she blogs at the Mad-Eyed Monk. That's madeyedmonk.blogspot.com. Cynthia, great to make your acquaintance. Great to be here. It's an honor. I'm an admirer of your work. Oh, thank you. Well, you'll, you'll, be, you'll find this interesting. When I first realized that the Jesus of the New Testament was not what we now call the Jesus of the New Age movement, the first church I went to was Grace Brethren Church in Lansing, Michigan, associated with the Grace Brethren denomination from Winona Lake. That's where you grew up, is that right? I grew up in the Grace Brethren Church, yes, yeah, in Mansfield, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't stay there long, but that was my first contact with historic, you know, any historic form of Christianity. I was I was raised Catholic and then fell away. So we're looking at a long time ago, 1974, 75, when I was there. But uh, mm-hmm. so did you take your faith seriously when you were growing up? Um, I did when I was a child. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for a lot that I did learn there. I mean, we learned a lot of Bible stories, had to memorize. A lot of passages, so it was it was a good it was a good education, you know, growing up mm-hmm. um, until I got into my teen years, yeah. and I fell away rather quickly. What uh, what were the issues that uh, presented themselves as uh, insurmountable uh, temptations at the time? Um, well, a lot of it was um, a, a rebellious nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. I was, I was a rebellious teenager, and um, I didn't embrace a lot of the the strict orthodoxy of that particular branch of yeah. Christianity. Yeah. And I, I really kind of fell into the you know Eastern religions and philosophies of yeah. the time at that time, and that kind of took me farther away from. Christianity. Where were you first exposed to those? Where were you first exposed to those Eastern philosophies? I actually, it all began with a Tao Te Ching book I happened to see and and uh, acquire, and and then I was uh, very much into writing poetry and the art, so okay. it just spoke to me. Um, and then you know, I proceeded from there to investigate and read. And then went off to college at Ohio State and was more of being indoctrinated into liberalism. And the women's movement was really just getting a foothold yeah, there. Yeah. And, and I, I embraced all, a lot of the liberal ideologies and uh, women's movement propaganda. Mm-hmm. I took the first women's studies class that they offered there. Really? And, wow. Yeah. And just really... Uh, Started railing against patriarchy, and uh, and then that included, of course, any religion because I looked at religion as patriarchal. And right. So, I just, did you become an atheist? I, I did. Actually, yes, I did. I I was an atheist for a while, 
just really um, was into more agnosticism with the the life force that runs through yeah. everything. Okay. Uh, you know, kind of the nature. I I love nature, so that spoke to me. Um, read a lot of, you know, the early American transcendentalists. Yeah. You know, Thoreau, Emerson. Um, did you, Did you read Annie Dillard around that time? Oh yes, yeah. yeah. Read read all of Annie Dillard. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so that that just kind of and there was a lot of beauty and and there were good things to glean from all that. Sure. You know, but it just kind of fueled my uh, journey away from uh, Christ, basically. Yeah. Yeah. How did you regard the Catholic Church as an institution back then? Oh, I I really did not like the Catholic Church at all. I I, I railed against the Catholic Church a lot. Mm-hmm. Yes, I did because of the male priests and you know. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, um, the fact that I became Catholic is astounding. It's still astounding <laughs> to me when I look back. No. When when you um, met your husband, was he sharing the same? you know, ideologies that you were sharing? He was in a, he shared a lot of my liberalism. Um, He did not, he he still believed in God. He was a fallen away Catholic. Um, So, you know, uh, that was fine with me, you know, at that time. Um, So, yeah, he, we were along the same page. He did not embrace my feminism, my radical feminism. He would roll his eyes a lot Mm. Things I would say, okay. <laughs> I okay. believe, but he's hung in there. Yeah. Uh, so, once you're married, what's your attitude towards children? I really did not want to ever be married in my twenties or have children because I thought that was diminishing my womanhood. Yeah. Um, and that marriage was like a private, <clears throat> tyrannical state. In other words, you know. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I just but you know, my husband is the one who really convinced me to have children. Actually, you know, he he brought forth the, you know the beauty of having a child to me in a way that you know I it just made me stop and look at it differently. It I guess it broke through a lot of my propagandized mentality at the time. You know, yeah. I you know it's not it and as I was just beginning to, you know, see how, you know, having a child would be a beautiful thing to do, um, is when I became pregnant. So, yeah. yeah. The timing was right. (laughs) It was, absolutely. And uh, what was the experience? I mean, pregnancy uh, can be a very difficult time for some women. Other women um, seem to thrive during pregnancy. how, how? What kind of pregnancy did you have? Was it uh, tough? It was very tough. Yeah. Yes, I was one of those women that was. I was sick all day. Yeah, every yeah. day for four straight months, and then it wasn't so bad after that. But yeah, it, so after. But you know, I, I had my best friend committed suicide during oh. that. So oh. yeah, that was. Um, yeah, she was like my sister, and so that made the pregnancy extra hard. Oh, my word. Yeah, it was a very difficult time because I had this extreme joy bringing this this child into the world and then this extreme grief happening at the same time. Which which is a very um, 
I mean, here you are in a life-affirming posture. Uh, right. And yet you have a very close friend who's basically denying uh, that life is worth living. Right. Uh, that's terrible. Yeah, so it, yeah, it's such a yeah, tragic dichotomy there. Wow. Yeah. Did you dwell on it at all? Um, yeah, it was, it was difficult. I actually, like, even went to counseling for it because, yeah, I couldn't breathe it, you know, and I was trying to get my breath back. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, it was a very difficult time, but then there was this joy, you know, of this child coming, so it was just this one extreme to the other constantly, you know, so it was very, it was an interesting first pregnancy. So were you, as you came more and more to embrace uh, the idea of motherhood and the fact of your uh, maternity, uh, did you find your attitude towards uh, theistic religions changing at all? Um, no. Okay. I did not. It wasn't until later um, when my son was entering into school. I mean, I was still, I, I, I really embraced a lot of the New Age writers and Wayne Dyer, Eckhart Tolle, yep. you know, the list goes on. I was really steeped in that. Um, it wasn't until my son started kindergarten and our public school wasn't very good where we were living, so I wanted to send him to the Catholic school. And in order to send him there, I told my husband he had to join the church so we could get the hefty discount from going <laughs> sure. there. And so he did. He went, you know, back but then, you know, he had a reconversion and really um, started attending Mass and all the sacraments. And and then I was in another dilemma because I remember talking to my sister and and saying, I'm married to a man who goes to Mass. What am I going to do? <laughs> like, I was at that point then, you know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so... Then, you know, my son was at a Catholic school and going to Mass with my husband, and then he kept asking me to go to Mass with them. And I said, okay, you know, I can sit in this beautiful church and listen to this beautiful music. And that's when things began to happen, you know. Um, <laughs> the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist was working on me there, wow. even as I sat in the pew and, you know, um, no. of course... Did 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 you um, did, were you trying? To, how were you raising your child? I mean, what were you teaching? What stories were you telling uh, your child? Oh, at that I was time? teaching him all about world religions, reading him Siddhartha Gautama's story, and yeah, um, and a lot of you know just nature mysticism, um, you know, stories that were full of beauty, yeah, and love, and you know, but. I did not teach him anything about Christianity at that point. Uh, you're at Mass, right. and the Eucharist begins working on you. When I'm just curious, what was it? Uh, you were there, you were settled uh, in a beautiful church, you heard the music, you saw uh, the uh, people going up for communion. Um, what did you? What did you think was happening? I think it it was Christ just coming within me. Um, I felt him. Mm-hmm. It was experiential, yeah. not so much intellectual, because my intellect was my worst enemy and blocked a lot of, 
you know, Christ yep. trying to reach me, you know, but sitting at Mass and, you know, I think he he was able to, you know, break through the intellectualism and actually I could experience his presence in that church. Hold, hold it there if you would, Cynthia. got to take a break and come back. And uh, again, this experience of the presence of Christ, uh, again, gets really gets underneath the defenses that are often erected intellectually. We'll come back and continue your conversation. I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. No, I didn't want to give up sin. I mean, the reason we sin is because sin is fun. But it's, it's self-love sin. But it's amazing with God's grace how easy trying to not sin it really is. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. This program brought to you in part by the following nonprofit, Christian in College. Looking for a life-changing experience this summer that will strengthen your child's faith and immerse them in a joyful Catholic culture? Well, send them to Christendom College's high school summer program, The Best Week Ever. It's located in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia, and The Best Week Ever is one of those gifts that keeps on giving. You can learn more and apply at bestweekever.com. Mention Al Cresto when applying. That's bestweekever.com. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Catholic Connection with Teresa Tomio. There was a big story about this Catholic college saying, oh, we are going to open our doors to anyone who identifies as a woman. So a male student coming in, but if he calls himself a woman, that's fine. This is all about diversity and equality. This is a Catholic women's college. And so, thanks be to God, there was a lot of pushback. And guess what? The school rescinded. How important it is not to give up and to remember that we can and should respectfully, always with love, express our concerns. It doesn't matter. The victory is up to God. But sometimes we do see that success in the victories, as is the case with St. Mary's College, who says now it needs to go back to its roots and get a deeper understanding of what it means to be a Catholic college for women. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popchuk. St. John Bosco once had a heavenly vision telling him to reject harsh approaches to discipline and instead raise the children in his care with reason, religion, and loving kindness. Today, we call his method Discipleship Discipline. 
It's a means of child rearing that doesn't just focus on stopping bad behavior, but rather helps parents raise faithful kids who love God and lead virtuous Christian lives. Discipleship discipline is great for kids, but it also helps parents experience and share God's love more effectively with their families. That's why discipleship discipline is such an important part of the liturgy of domestic church life, a way of experiencing the faith as the source of the warmth in your home. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit catholiccounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit catholiccounselors.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Cynthia Skadova. She is recounting her coming into full communion with the Catholic Church. And again, a fascinating story. By the way, she blogs at the Mad-Eyed Monk. So you just head over there, Mad-Eyed Monk, one word, dot blogspot.com and slash. So the presence of Christ starts asserting, he starts asserting himself. What's the first thing you want to do at that point? Do you want to go read a Bible? Do you want to go talk to the priest? Did you want to ask your husband to straighten this out? What, what did you do when you began to feel some sense of reality there? I really wanted to receive him in the Eucharist. Okay. You know, above and beyond anything, it was just, it was that. It was such a peace and joy yeah. that, you know, I really, I really wanted to receive him in the Eucharist, and I couldn't because I wasn't Catholic, and that started prompting my desire to investigate Catholicism, mm -hmm. because I really never did right. fully. You know, I just took it up the surface. And so I started reading all the church fathers and saints' writings, and, you know, that started me down that path. And then I joined RCIA and continued mm -hmm. my conversion and to join the church. You were part of, early on, you were in the women's movement and one of the first women's studies uh, students at Ohio State. Where was abortion? I mean, I, I remember a conversation I had with Gloria Steinem years ago where she said abortion is the sine qua non of the women's movement. Uh, so abortion and the women's movement seem to go hand in hand. What was your attitude Absolutely. towards abortion now that you were a mother? Even when I was a mother, I still did not let go of that, that a woman has the right to choose. Even though when I saw the ultrasound of my son in the womb, that's when I really started to realize the lies of the women's movement. You know, it was like, this is a child. It's not a bunch of cells. But I still didn't relinquish that pseudo power, in a sense, that mm -hmm. women should have the right to choose. But it absolutely goes hand in hand with the women's movement. And I embraced that. I mean, I, I was witness to the women's movement and, and the destruction of a lot that is sacred, really. Yeah. It, in the process of that. I mean, I'm not saying that there wasn't good that came out of it, but it got hijacked mm -hmm. by, you know, far left radical, and it got hijacked by darkness. Right. And um, it left women in the most vulnerable positions where they, you know, a lot of college women, I mean, they were having abortion and not thinking twice about it in a sense. Maybe that was on the surface. I don't know what their inner life was or, you know, but uh, it, it was, we had that right. We were going after careers and, you know, we had the right to not, you know, bring a child into the world. So it, it wasn't um, an ideology that embraced the right of the child in the womb because the child 
in essence, didn't exist. Mm-hmm. It was just a bunch of cells. So and even with, you know, go ahead. So you see, so you, so you still, even after you uh, saw your child, you were still able to, I mean, did you just say to yourself, well, it's a clump of cells, but if the mother wants to keep the child, that kind of endows that those that bunch of cells with personhood? Yeah, well, even, you know, seeing that it was a child, I still, in my with my intellectual part of my being, was like, well, the woman still has that right to choose. Yeah, that was, yeah. And and it comes out of that whole new age. It's like trying to make ourselves into little gods, mm-hmm. you know. And a lot of that is steeped in the secular universities, um, you know, that ideology and philosophy that, you know, we are our own gods, yep. you know, in a sense. So that still had a stronghold in me. And, you know, as, you know, I gave birth to my son and, you know, I started shifting, but it took me a few years to shift all the way yeah. to, to see through the lies and see through, you know, how destructive a lot of the the women, the radical feminist ideology was. Yeah, yeah. And is. You know, it's gotten worse since, you know, I was, you know, since the 80s, yes. And 90s. yes. It's actually boring, you know, I mean, and and horrific in a lot of ways, you know, it's it's very full of darkness and, and, um, you know, it was was quite enlightening. And, you know, the more, uh, you know, I was growing in my faith, you know, the more I could see, you know, a lot of the air of the women's movement, you know, a lot of the air of women trying to, instead of being strong women, who were daughters of the creator of the universe, you know, they're trying to make themselves into men. And, you know, it's like, if we look to Mary, you know, we see, you know, the most powerful woman, and she's the most powerful woman because she said yes to God. She humbled herself. Right. So, you know, and I, I remember when I was joining the church, someone asked me, well, how can you join the church when only men can be priests? You have no powers and that. And, and I remember, and this could only have come from God because I wasn't smart enough to think this, but it was like, it's not about power. And it, that's what helped me overcome those obstacles that had been entrenched in me from the women's movement. It's not about power. But then, in essence, if we open ourselves to be a conduit of God's grace working through us, that's real power because it's God's power, mm. not ours. We're not little gods. Um, so that that really, that insight really helped me along uh, my conversion. That's 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 fascinating. I mean, this, this uh, and that's one of those life-changing realizations, isn't it? I mean, um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That uh, human wisdom uh, doesn't get us what we want, but there is something called the divine wisdom. Human striving doesn't get us what we want, but there is something called divine power. But uh, we can't receive that until we submit. Um, right. Right. I mean, God asks for our humility above all else. Right. You know, so much of secular thought is contrary to that. And, you know, it, 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 it's not fulfilling. It's, it, it doesn't, you know, fill that void within us. And, right. you know, so it was, it's the joy and the love and the light, you know, that I've enjoyed, you know, journeying toward, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and as I, you know, unfold more of the mysteries of faith, it's, 
it's even more beautiful. It's like looking at a multifaceted jewel. Yeah. You know, it's, it just becomes even more beautiful as you go along. And and I think those are the glimpses of Christ, you know, that you, you're looking at. So, it, you know, where else would I want to be? I know, you know, even with the recent, you know, sex abuse yep. scandal that's been happening, it's, I had a priest friend of mine ask me, you know, so how has that affected your faith? And I'm like, well, you know, I have to say, like, Peter, you know, St. Peter, you know, it's like, where else would I go? <laughs> exactly. Where else would I turn to? I've come down this really difficult, you know, road full of my own, you know, stumbling. And mm-hmm. to arrive here, it's like I have no desire to go anywhere else. Right. You know, I've already searched long and hard, and, you know, so it's it's Christ in, in the Eucharist once again. It's His Church. You know, yes, it's full of fallen humanity, but it's His Church. Yeah. And yes, we need to, you know, keep reforming and weed out, you know, evil, yeah. and, but it's still Christ's Church, and it's worth fighting for. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, this is, how does this affect your marriage? I'm just curious, because your husband was kind of got involved in the Church before you did, uh, and it sounds like your son also was coming into uh, belief before you were mm-hmm. uh, received into full communion. Was that a smooth transition as you became more and more Catholic? Well, it certainly helped as I became more and more yeah. Catholic, yeah. as opposed to the beginning, you know. But, yeah, it, it it did. I mean, and I could tell my son was really happy with me coming to Mass, and that's what kept me going, you know. I wanted to make him happy. Yeah. And, yeah, it was bumpy, but it got better. And then, you know, when my husband wanted to be, you know, married, because we were married in a universalist, uh, Unitarian church and by a Presbyterian minister. And so we were married in the Catholic church then by a priest. And I, I went along with that for him, yeah. you know. Um, but I'm glad I did now. Yes. Uh, what what do you do... Um, do you still do you still have friends uh, from the, the women's movement days that you talk with? Yes, I do. I do. Yes. How do they and, account? Um, how do they account for your changed life? Well, it's interesting. I mean, <clears throat> they respect me. They respect as far as you know. They're, they're not hostile to it, but they can't understand how on earth I could be Catholic and a woman. But. The only thing I can really do is, you know, express the joy and beauty of Catholicism when I do talk about it, mm-hmm. um, and you know how how I see things, and and you know, and it's it's you know I'm not railing against them, but I'm just yeah. putting forward the beauty, and it causes pause. I can tell, you know, so That's I'm good. hoping, you know, they're little seeds. Yeah. You know, that are being planted in that, you know, and just like I'm working on a memoir right now and, Good. you know, with hopes of, you know, helping the walking wounded out right. there, you know, and that, you know, women who have gone through this or who are still steeped in that kind of darkness, maybe, you know, like giving, reaching out a hand to try and pull them into the light from sure. that is kind of my purpose of it and, you know, pull them towards Christ in that. So, um yeah, it's an ongoing. It's you know, I, as a neuromuscular therapist, I I deal with people in pain, and yeah. I 
you know, I tend to that, and I help, try to help them out of it. So in a way, this is more of that, only on a spiritual level. Hmm, sure. Um, yeah, so it's kind of what I, I want to do with my middle years here. Yeah. Well, I think I God think willing. your experience of being of the Eucharist drawing you um, is, I think, is fascinating. I, this is an aspect of the faith that I don't think we respect enough, and that is that the, the power of God is at work there, uh, even beyond our imaginings, and beyond our thinking, and our uh, beyond our ability to articulate it. Something is going Absolutely. on. Absolutely, and I can only say, and and this, <clears throat> the the most powerful thing about that was it was the presence of Christ. It was the, like the per, it was like a person. It wasn't you know people like it's the life force. No, right, right. It was like it's a different. I I was into the life force. I yeah. know what that is. That's yeah. right. But this was like the person of Christ. I mean, it was so powerful. Mm-hmm. I it's like I I had no intellectual guard to that because it was experiential and you know intellectually i would have rejected it this and that but it was just that powerful and that's what drew me down that path yeah i never thought in a million years i would go it's a beautiful story i'm anxious to hear the memoir or read it when it comes out i hope uh, you get it done and we'll talk again okay well thank you so much it's been a pleasure talking with you yes likewise Cynthia Scadova, the book, uh, excuse me, her book will be out. Right now you can follow her work at The Mad-Eyed Monk. That's madeyedmonk.blogspot.com. I'm Al Cresta. How does the first commandment encompass the virtue of charity? The Catholic Catechism says it commands us to love God above all else and to love all creatures for him and because of him. There are numerous ways to sin against God's love. The sin of indifference neglects or refuses to contemplate divine charity. Ingratitude refuses to even acknowledge divine charity or return to God love for love. Lukewarmness is hesitation or negligence in responding to divine love. Spiritual sloth occurs when a person rejects the joy coming from God and is repelled by divine goodness. Finally, Actual hatred of God denies his goodness and curses him as the one who forbids sin and inflicts punishments. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. Dr. Ray Garendi. What's looking back at you at age 22? What do you hope to say about that child at age 22? If you're content to say, well, the way kids are turning out nowadays... Counting my blessings. Parole officer says one of the nicest children he has. Or would you rather say he's one in a hundred? Morals, compassion, seeks God. Are you prepared to be a one in a hundred parent then? You can't parent like the bulk of parents anymore. You will supervise far higher. You will screen out toxic media sewage at a rate unlike all of your friends, perhaps your family. No guarantees as to what will be looking back at you at age 22. But you want to be able to say, I think he's one in a hundred. Then you be a one in a hundred parent.
And uh, thanks again for joining us over the last two hours. If you go to AveMariaRadio.net, you can follow up on the conversations that we had. We'll have books by uh, Father Joseph Fessio and Paul Shrimden available for you there, as well as uh, the article that we have from Cynthia Skidova sharing her journey to the church. As we go off the air, Catholic Answers Live is ready to take your calls. And also, before we go off the air, wanted to offer some congratulations. What's more, another member of the EWTN radio family is celebrating an anniversary. Carolina Catholic Media, 1270 AM, serving the greater Charlotte area, celebrating four years with us this week. Congrats to uh, David Papandria and the great team at Carolina Catholic Media from all of your friends at EWTN. Uh, more to talk about over the next few days. Tomorrow we'll have Pete Burak sitting behind the mic for us. He's got some great guests lined up, including uh, Edmund Miller looking at the meaning of Catholic Schools Week and the meaning of Catholic education. We'll probably have some other discussions on Catholic education later on in this week as we continue celebrating this Catholic Schools Week. And uh, I guess I'll have to just give one more time. You know, we've been uh, broadcasting here in Detroit. Many of us are having a bit of a tough day. It was a heartbreaking loss last night. Uh, recency bias aside, that might be the toughest loss in the history of the Detroit Lions, given that they've just never made it that far and been that close. But um, that's why sports are fun. That's why we, you know, every time we talk about sports, you end up seeing all these connections to the faith, whether it be an athlete sharing their faith or just this sense of going through trials with the hope of eventual success. So congrats to the 49ers. We'll get you next year. And uh, that's all for now. Catholic Answers Live is next. Have a great evening and God bless. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A, radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.